Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School, and today I have an interview for you with another set of great podcasters. If you haven't heard of the Just Shoot It podcast, you're in for a treat. It is a great podcast for filmmakers. It is created by and hosted by Matt Enlow and Oren Kaplan, and they are both working directors who decided at some point that there isn't a podcast or a resource for people who are just trying to figure out how to be a director and what a director does. These guys are just two working directors who talk about getting jobs, keeping jobs, creating opportunities, building a career, and they interview tons of people in the industry and ask the kinds of important questions that really help you figure out how things work. It's a great podcast and I'm a huge fan and I've been on it as a guest. So I had them on our podcast here as a guests, as guests, not as a guest, because they are two different people. Um, and Matt and Oren are great. And in this episode, we talk about how Oren shot during the pandemic on location and what that was like. We also talk about the state of the industry, the future of the industry. We also talk about just their careers and how they've spent their time during this period staying active and being productive and, you know, doing whatever they need to do to stay sharp. So it's a good podcast and they're great. And I encourage you to listen and I encourage you to check out their podcast and their site. Uh, it is justshootitpodcast.com. I'm excited to have you guys from the Just Shoot It podcast, Orrin Kaplan, Matt Enlow, to working filmmakers. If you haven't listened to the Just Shoot It podcast, you should. It's one of the things everybody at No Film School uh, pays attention to and loves. And anybody who's in our No Film School community should probably add it to their list if they don't already. But if you do, uh, it's just fun to have a little crossover because we crossed over the other way not long ago. The thing that I wanted to kind of like big topic, but I feel like I want to talk to you guys about um, to start off here is... In case you haven't noticed, we've been in, in a global pandemic recently, and the world has turned upside down, and it has completely changed the way movies and television and content of all manner is created and promoted and displayed and shared, and a lot of people aren't working. And at No Film School, as our listeners are aware, we've done a lot of stuff about this. Like you can do writing. Uh, here's the ways you can shoot remote. Uh, here's stuff you can watch. <laughs> like Here's a watch list from Quentin Tarantino. But I want to talk to you guys because I think you've put some thought and time into this topic already as well. But you're also working directors, uh, filmmakers who have, that's what you do. And I'd like to get your takes and thoughts on the best uses, the worst uses, or just how you guys have used this time, because I'm curious, and I think uh, our listeners are as well. We have talked a lot about this, and we definitely don't have the right answer for anyone. Um, but I will say that we're quite experienced in seeing like what a lot of other people have done. That's all been really fascinating slash frustrating to us because we have friends that have like sold TV shows and gotten new movie jobs and um, done all sorts of, you know, even on Instagram, you'll see like my, your DP friends are on set somehow. <laughs> You're like, what is going on here? So I think at its equal times, like, 
you we you all of a sudden have all this time to think about what you want to do, but you're also kind of stuck in this anxiety loop of like the fact that you aren't doing anything, and so um so it's it's a it's a weird time for sure. It sounds almost like there's a little like I almost hearing you saying that like there's almost like a little zen perhaps of that that those things are part of our lives mm-hmm. in this business no matter what. Because you'll always look at Instagram and see someone to be like, man, so-and-so sold the sure. show. <laughs> like, so-and-so's getting nominated for an Emmy or whatever. But yeah. on the other hand, like, it, it's like kind of heightened. Is it a heightened state right now? I, I actually haven't seen a lot of people. I know one guy, I did see somebody I know who sold the show. And I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome, c- c- given the circumstances. But I, I totally get the jealousy side. Well, like you, we've interviewed a lot of uh, filmmakers, especially during this quarantine, because everyone has been very easy to get to interview. Right. But uh, a lot of like we had uh, the Pierce brothers on, they had the number one movie in the box office for, I think, four weekends in a row. <laughs> and off of that, they, you know, got some more movies. We've had uh, just various people that have, that have had interesting opportunities and Sure. And the flip side being, of course, we know a ton of filmmakers who are in the same boat as everyone else, too. We're only we're only paying attention to the people posting on Instagram about how their lives are still somehow great um, because it would be insane to just post another selfie of like, oh, boy, quarantine day 137. Or just more sourdough bread right. or whatever. It right. is. Well, the social media just like amplifies this whole COVID anxiety, I think, times 10. Like today, you know, all these people I know on Facebook were like, I won an Emmy. I'm like, great. I'm trying to figure out how to make money this month. That is a tangible uh, p- piece of advice, though. I got off Facebook and um, look, everyone's social media diet is going to be different. But I think that um, if you can find ways to be informed without... Uh, feeding that kind of ego and anxiety that social media plays into. I think that that's actually worthwhile, especially during this time. For sure. I think the first few weeks, everyone's like, hey, don't feel pressured to write a feature. Like you don't have to feel pressured to perform, even though you have all this free time because of all the uncertainty going on. But now we're like four months into it and the pressure is kind of kind of there. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a lot of ways to slice this. One is, and and it's the first thing that came to mind when you said like your theoretical, like I come across the DP and he's on set. I just thought, I hope he was wearing a mask. <laughs> like, like, is there a part of it where you're like, how do people work safely? Do you guys, you guys know some people who've gone back to set safely? Um, we've done a couple pieces on a film school about uh, remote workflows that, that like some ad agencies have used. Have you guys personally done anything, shot anything, experienced set of, of any kind and, and or, you know, secondhand? You know, uh, I'm going to, Oren's got better stories, but just to kind of, we both work commercially pretty regularly. And one thing that is especially heartbreaking in the, the COVID times is that like more and more jobs are coming up and then disappearing. Like normally, you know, commercials kind of come and go. It's not that big a deal. But, you know, my reps were saying that, like, they don't really believe that any of the jobs we're bidding on are actually going to go into production just because there's so much influx and so much liability that, like, if you start put setting your heart on, like, oh, this is going to be the spot that, you know, gets me back on set, they just disappear so much faster than normal. But Oren did actually get to shoot a few that happened, so... Yeah, I guess I've kind of uh, 
had gone been done the gamut of what you described. So I did do one totally 100% remote shoot where I was on Zoom. The actor was shooting herself with an iPhone. We sent her on a tripod and a ring light and another light and a boom mic. And our art director sent her 12 bins that were all labeled with a diagram of her kitchen and where to put every item. Um, and we did that whole thing. We shot everything over Zoom. And it was it was challenging, but it totally worked. I basically storyboarded the commercial by me shooting the commercial at my place. Um, and then I pho- photographed my setup too, just to show that you could do it as a one-person thing. It's incredibly hard to f- frame a human being on a camera when he, there's no human being there, you know? So I happen to have this like very lightweight easel that you can adjust the height of to be the height of you. <laughs> and then the, the easel was a stand-in. So when I was like framing up a close-up, I would kind of mark where my head was on the easel and I could zoom in on the iPhone, you know, because we wanted to use the back camera, not the selfie camera, because it's a better camera. Um, I also had like an iPad that was in selfie mode behind the iPhone. So I could see from where I was standing, what frame the iPhone was seeing, <laughs> if that makes any sense, kind of like a mirror. So, um, so yeah, so she, we finally convinced her husband to help us out, which was, I don't think we could have pulled it off without him. Cause he, you know, just from a lighting point of view, it's really hard to tell if moving a light, you know, dialing it in is working without when you're just looking at an empty set. Can you tell me what it's like when you're zoom directing someone and you need to ask them or their husband, neither of whom really, I assume has like significant experience talking about lighting or art department or anything like that's one of the things that I'm fascinated by about the zoom directing a person who's like in it doesn't do the things that they have to do for this. The actor was Stephanie Beatriz. She's on the show, um, Brooklyn nine, nine. And so she had been on like, you know, many seasons of TV. So she had some understanding of like, you know, she knows what a C stand is, what a light is, what a flag is. Um, her husband is not in the film business. And so, you know, probably the the messiest things that happen is when I'd say like raise the C stand, and you know, um, he would maybe use like the top knuckle instead of the bottom knuckle type of thing. But but even what knowing like a C stand knuckle is or that it's called is you know a little tricky. But overall, it was fine. You know, I mean, I think placing the boom mic was a little bit of a lesson, you know, for him. But um, yeah, the from a technical point of view, I think it was pretty easy. And also, I had I was screenshotting the zoom <laughs> the the image. We were using the software that automatically uploads every take to this website so we can review it immediately, like in full 4K. Which software? It's called Cinebody. So I would take screenshots from that and send it to my DP friend and be like, hey, what would you do, like, lighting-wise? How would you make the cabinet darker? What, you know, just give me some notes, and then I would kind of forward them on. And I I had people I was kind of, like, brainstorming with on how to improve the image. We had two Zoom rooms. One was the client, um, all the clients and the agency people and the uh, like client affairs business people. I don't know. And and a producer. And then on our Zoom, we had the AD. We had the, the production designer, art director, whatever you want to call her, and another producer, um, like more of the creative producers and me. I wish we didn't have to shoot on an iPhone because um, I, I, and we've talked about this on the podcast, on our podcast so many times, but the iPhone is this amazing, amazing camera in the right conditions. And those right conditions are daylight (laughs) 
basic, really bright daylight, daylight exterior without a pandemic are kind of the three key <laughs> aspects. Even interior, like big windows, you know, kind of you can get really beautiful images out of it. But when you are closing all the blinds and you have one light to light a set and an actor, and you're shooting it on this tiny, tiny sensor with no depth of field, really. This same company that I did that commercial with, the very next one, they they basically figured out how to get a uh, one person to go with the camera, like an uh, Alexa or a Black Magic or something, into the house of the celebrity person they were shooting. And I think, you know, I think it makes a big difference. I, I'm actually like not one of those camera people that think like the camera really matters, but I do think an iPhone is never going to look like an Alexa, you know? Yeah, commercial, a pr- professional grade commercial is going to stick out a little bit on an iPhone. Unless it's one of those ones that they did on the iPhone to demonstrate the iPhone at its absolute best, like you said, which I think they shot in the sunny day in the snow, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that one also, you're putting it on drones and gimbals and, you know, you have awesome like grips kind of working things out. And it's really that spot that you're referring to, um, the snow fight is really based on the dynamic movements of the phone, you know, and the wide, super wide angle lens, which is awesome, but you don't shoot people to make them look good with that lens. You know, you shoot that for moving the camera and making things look interesting. I think I had actually kind of a a similar experience, but I realized kind of the inverse. Uh, I had a, a handful of like teeny tiny pickup shots that I had to do on a feature that we're finishing up. And it's the sort of, they're the sort of shots that like normally you just have a DP come over and like bang out in an afternoon and not even think about, you know, Um, just like mostly hands and things like that, like a point of view pieces. Um, But because of the pandemic, you know, it would, we'd taken, we'd waited an extra long time to finally pick them up. So like we've finally got around to it. um, But, we wanted to keep the crew as small as possible. So we ended up putting our producer on an iPad um, with on FaceTime and basically moving the stand around so that she could be there, quote unquote, on set, keeping an eye on things like weighing in, you know, basically acting as video village. Um, And that actually worked great. Like I was really surprised, you know, battery life aside that like it really wasn't, it didn't feel very different. And as long as you're mindful of making sure that like you move the the iPad around so that people can see really clearly, like just having it mounted on a stand was great. She ate lunch with us. She hung out with us. <laughs> you know, I could like literally walk over and whisper something to her. You know, it was great. <laughs> you just yeah. have to put it on a ma- mannequin that you can roll around it's, and then I, you're getting closer and closer. Li- literally, I did hang a sweater from the iPad and I think it made it kind of more it's like a little cheeky and a little fun and made it less sad you know the reality of what like that we can't see our good friend kind of is mitigated a tiny bit by some dress up but really why not use those robots like the silicon valley one where it's like the head is an ipad and it's they're controlling it walking around your well, 100 yeah as soon as they are better than someone just moving the stand which was so easy i mean i bet you could hack a roomba to 
get you 80% of the way there as long as there's no stairs or yeah. you know, bumps yeah. around. That is just another like no film school post waiting to be written. Can somebody out there, if you're listening, hack a Roomba and make it like your PA on set and just have it do like set things or move a light, like or remote control car. I'm sitting now I'm starting to get excited about this. There could sure. be a hundred yeah. DIY, DIY hacks. I want to like kind of get to another side of this, like I think have, have both of you done anything that's a little like one step further away from fully remote? Have you done like a halfway thing where there's like, I mean, some kind of set experience? It sounds like you were sort of describing one, Matt, with just one remote presence. Yeah, it was something where basically be- because the none of the footage actually needed actors. So it was really just a DP and myself and the director. Right. And so, you know, you I think we did eight shots that day. So it was very relaxed. You know, we took our time. No one had to rush, you know. So it was something where, um, you know, it was very easy. It was not the same sort of full production days that we're used to, you know. I did one production uh, during the pandemic and it was... It was out of town. It was in Kentucky. And it was pretty much like the normal commercial. And I guess the thing that is most was most interesting about it is, yeah, this shoot, you know, we all had masks and um, crafty. We had crafty, but it was like customized to be like even the chips and dip that usually have like craft services um, was individually packaged. It's like a little bag of chips and a little thing container of uh, salsa that you can take, which of course I couldn't eat because like the whole point of the chips and the dip is that you run by, you grab a chip, you slice it, <laughs> slide it in the salsa and keep running. And like, if you have to open up a bag and open up a container, come on. What was interesting about that shoot is it was originally going to be a local Kentucky crew just shooting location plates that took place in a supermarket. And it was going to be fully CG, with CG characters. And I have a VFX background. I've done some 3D stuff. And so that was why I came on to pitch on it. But then when I realized the budget and the capabilities and everything, it just real seemed like shooting it in person with one actor as opposed to a CG actor was just going to be way more affordable and we could get way more out of it, in my opinion. And so in the end, they decided, OK, well, we will do one actor and we'll have our crew here, but you'll stay in California and, you know, we'll do casting remotely, scouting remotely and directing remotely. And then finally, at the very end, I was like, guys, I just we have to be in all these different locations in this grocery store, getting all these kind of not complicated angles, but you know, they're not, it's not just a medium shot and a close up. It's like, we're following her down this aisle and we're the camera pans over here and she looks here and the camera pushes in here. And like, you want to be on set to figure out where the dolly track goes. You want to be able to talk to the actors because it's like... Were the actors cast out of Los Angeles and flown out there? The actress, the one? No, she was out of... I think she's from Ohio, but we, we, it, all the casting uh, happened from Kentucky, in Kentucky. So it was for um, the Kentucky Lottery. So I think they have a rule about like using oh, all local okay. people. Right. So you were the only out-of-towner was my... The, the only person flown in. Tell me about... The flying in and the travel and the risk, the sense of risk. I mean, even before talking about set, like, how did you feel about all of that? Yeah, so I'll try to go as fast as possible because kind of, kind of a lot of details. But I, I'll start out by saying that I, I have a kid, a four-year-old, and we have a backyard pod where it's us and three other families. And all our kids are the same age. And we have a teacher and she comes here and three days a week, we 
share our backyard with these families. Everyone wears masks um, except for the kids. The kids are kind of allowed to interact with each other maskless. The teacher doesn't wear a mask when the adults aren't around. And we had made this pact between these four families, right? Number one, we get tested every two weeks. Number two, we always wear masks around each other. Number three, we don't go to parties or do anything crazy or eat at restaurants or anything. Number four, most importantly, we do not fly anywhere. So it's like anyone with kids knows the insanity. Like literally, if you could just get two hours a week of somebody else watching your kids and your kids actually playing with other kids, it's just so it's so good on so many different levels. So like risking the pod was like not something like I would have not done the shoot if it risked the pod's existence. But so I had to have a negotiation with every family in the pod. We kind of had like the tribunal (laughs) uh, (laughs) about how I can do this without sacrificing the you know, sanctity of the, the safety of the It must the have pod. been hard for them too. Cause they were like, well, I don't want to tell this guy not to do this. But on the other hand, like we have to find a way to do this safely. Right. Yeah. Well, luckily we made the rules before I had the job. So nobody felt guilty. And really my wife was kind of the driving force behind, uh, you're choosing to do this. So you got to pay the, <laughs> the price. Um, so everything was just like at a super heightened level safety wise. I wore an N95 mask, um, the whole time. I mean, my thing is like I always have sanitizer in my pocket, like the spray kind and N95 mask if like and doing anything dangerous and then like a cloth mask, like just, you know, walking around the neighborhood or whatever. So on the airplane, I flew, I did a survey on Facebook. What's the best airline to fly for COVID? Everyone said Delta. They don't sell middle seats. They don't do drink service. There's all these things. They ma- Masks are mandatory. On some airlines, they were just encouraged. You know, the thing about COVID, it's not like so much about the science to me as of like how exactly a particle is flying from one person to another, but it's a little bit more about the attitude and being with people that you can trust that are not being cavalier about it. So mm-hmm. the yeah. trust of the airline is much more important than the actual like logistics, I, I think. Um, anyhow, I took flu Delta. There was no client dinners, none of the normal fun that you have on those travel jobs. Um, you know, even our pre-production call, which is, uh, to those who don't know, it's like a call you have with the agency and the client and the production company a, a day or two before the shoot to show them, these are the props, this is the wardrobe, these are actors, this is where we're shooting, and you can get any last-minute feedback before you're, you're actually doing the shoot. You guys have, have actually, by the way, both taught us a lot about being a working commercial director in the course of us talking about not specifically that. So that's kind of cool. I'm just throwing that out there. It's been fun to learn. And I think for a lot of people, we don't talk about that stuff that much on this podcast. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. Uh, neither of us, you know, set out to be commercial directors, but I think that as you learn to balance, you know, the different projects that you're all dreaming of, one of the things that's the most fun is commercials because you finally get budgets and resources and opportunities to kind of explore. And then you can maybe bring that back to your indie idea or your passion project or your short. Very well said. And I think that people don't realize that it's a opportunity to do things you're not going to be able to do budget wise or tools wise. And you're working with, you know, levels of things you may not get in other places too. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's, I think there is a little bit of that music video thing to it where it's like, because you're working on a 30 second piece of content, you really do get to focus on like, hey, let's do a spinning camera transition. That's that's the film making exercise for this commercial. Let's get a performance that's 
you know, hilarious, but also has like 200 words in 30 seconds, you know, like we've, I've talked to a lot of VFX people, cinematographers, editors who always say that it was on a commercial job that they, they did this for the first time. And that's why when they did X feature, it was the thing that they hung their hat on, so to speak. It was just like, we used that camera this way and it was really cool. And we could do it on the commercial and that gave us the belief that we could do it other places you You also get to log more time behind a camera and so as a result you're collaborating with those team members and so you all just get better faster and also make a decent living at the same time it used to be more delineated you know it used to be that you could only do one or the other but i think um now there's a lot more crossover Yeah. One last thing I'll say about that is I used to work with this producer who every time we got booked a job, she'd say, okay, what what toy do you want? And like on every (laughs) job, I would get the one. I mean, you know, it could be a Steadicam, it could be a Russian arm, could be a drone or a jib arm or, um, you know, an insane location or some a stunt person, you know, or wires or whatever. And that's kind of how I think of commercials is like, what's the toy that we get on this commercial that's going to tell this story and sell this product? You know, that's Um, cool. Yeah. So back to the back to shooting on set during coronavirus. So you flew. It sounds like you had a plan, and and the pod was okay with this plan. So you didn't lose like a super important family safety thing. Yeah. So you know, I was hoping that they the pod would care about how safely I did everything, and they didn't really. They cared more about what I did when I came back, which I'll get into in a minute, because they just kind of decided like at the time it wasn't that long ago a couple few weeks ago flying was just like on a scale of one to ten of how dangerous things are it was like a nine you know and so even though i was like wearing all these masks it's they were not willing to let me just come right back into the pod um but i'll I'll get to that in a second Uh, in terms of the shoot itself we were on set everyone wore masks everyone was awesome kentucky where we were louisville is like very conscious of COVID. They, and they barely had any cases. Like if I was flying into a place that was like blown, like a hot spot, I think I probably wouldn't like have here? gone there. Like LA? <laughs> like LA, yeah. Like- <laughs> um, also, when I did the scout for that virtually, it, it was really hard to scout such a big location without being able to walk around. Right. It kind of reinforces the realization that you just have to be there. Interesting. So that was one of those things that's kind of like, I think, I feel like there should be a list somewhere of like things that work really well remote, things that do not work remote yet. And right. like, it's, it, I could totally see how scouting you just don't get, but sometimes people do, you know, pictures like, so there's no video or pictures that really aided for you. Like you got to the supermarket and we're like, oh man, this is not what I thought. Well, no, it's just that the concept there was about this woman that is sneaking around a different uh, a supermarket in this kind of like Indiana Jones style. She's going on an adventure in the supermarket. So, yeah, you're laying a lot of dolly track, you know, like you're finding cool, weird angles. It's not like, you know, someone standing behind a countertop talking about how great, you know, the microwave chicken is or something. You know, it's like a it's a very cinematic spot relative to um, what you're trying to pull off. I feel like in commercials, there's kind of two kinds of scouts. There's a scout where you're trying to find this location that matches 
what you're picturing, you know? So like the thing I did totally remotely was a cooking show or a baking show kind of a concept or look. So, you know, the actress had this amazing counter in her kitchen and we just knew this is where we're going to shoot in this angle. <laughs> and that's all there. Wide, medium, close up. We'll move some overheads. We'll see some ingredients. We'll do maybe one shot in the oven or whatever. But overall, it's pretty obvious. So we see her kitchen. We're like, great. You know, yeah, um, it could practically it, be one wall. Yeah. And in that right. situation, even if you're scouting not during COVID, you could g- look at a bunch of kitchens um, on in photos. But then the other type of scout, I think, is the discovery type of scout where it's like, okay, we're going to go to this castle and we're going to try to find the coolest angles here. We're going to go to Griffith Park and we're going to find the coolest thing. So here we had the supermarket already that was part of the, you know, wanted to work with the lottery. And it's like, so we know the location, but there's, you know, 50 different aisles there. <laughs> like which ones are going to look the best? And that kind of scout I found really challenging to do remotely because I couldn't just like pan left or look up or look down or how tall is this? And when I got there, I was like, oh, I actually, part of my storyboarding I'm, that I've been doing a lot lately has been like using 3D software. So I used like Cinema 4D and I built like a model of the supermarket based on our scout. And when I got there, I realized it was totally wrong. Like I put walls that weren't there, like, and it was all based on the photos that I had. So that's um, annoying. Yeah. So anyway, um, so we way did to waste shoot. all your time on that garbage 3D model. Uh, it's still lined up, but it just, yes. yeah. Uh, geographically different than I expected. But, um, and this is something Matt and I had talked a lot on the podcast before is we knew that masks breathing, you know, I think we could overcome, you know, distancing that stuff, but the touching is just something that is pretty much impossible to get around on set. No gloves or gloves. Like what? Like, so in short, no gloves. I mean, we had some gloves cause we were dealing with like some f- produce at the supermarket and we did not want to touch it with our hands, but uh, I'm a I'm a believer that no gloves is actually more sanitary than gloves because you can sanitize your hands much easier than you can sanitize gloves. Yeah, um, I've heard that. I've heard people say that. Yeah, unless you're like washing gloves all the time, then the gloves become the carrier if it's on surfaces, mm-hmm. etc. And so we were sanitizing all the time, but I would touch the camera. Other people, you know, the the G and E department is touching things. We had two art people that were touching we, because we had a smaller crew. Normally, I think it's like a five or six person art crew you would need for a supermarket because you're trying to hide every single brand in all these shots. Oof, yeah, um, but we only had too. So they're running around touching everything. The PAs are helping them carry things out of the way. So touching wise, you know, everyone touched everything, but we sanitized and that we wore the masks and, you know, I don't want to get political here, but I, I do think like one of the biggest advantages of the mask is sure it's the breathing, but it's also just a barrier that helps you not touch your face. So, mm, yeah. um, I, I think with the sanitation and the masks, people weren't really touching the same thing and then touching their mouths or their noses. Right. Um, so, and I know a lot of people say the mask itself can get really dirty because you're touching it and adjusting it. And that set was pretty good, but I have run into people that work on sets that are like, eh, I don't know why we need these masks, but I guess I'll put it on. And like, they're, they kind of scare me a little bit because like, who knows what they're doing, you know? But yeah, so the shoot went fine. No one got COVID from it that I know of. At lunch, we had to kind of all sat far away from each other eating like packed, pre-packed lunch. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, but when I came back and I'm just sharing this because in case any of your listeners are in the same situation where they're debating whether they should fly and their, you know, families or pods or bubbles or whoever are saying like, no, you're going to break our pact. The rule was for me was I had to quarantine 
for 10 days and I had to get two negative test results back um, in those 10 days. In Los Angeles, I believe it really is easy for anyone to get a test. Like I know I'm, I know there's very wealthy people that have doctors come to their house and give them tests, but the way I've gotten tested has been totally free and totally public every single time. And it didn't, they did not even require having health insurance. So I just want to put it out there that in life, if you're in Los Angeles, uh, if you just Google LA COVID test, um, they're very easy, very free ways to get it without you having to pay or have insurance or anything. So just want to put that out there. It sounds like, Oren, you've had a couple commercial projects go. Matt, it sounds like you're finishing up a feature. Are there things like so? And, and there's, it sounds like also it's safe to say for both of you, it's been like hurry up and wait on steroids, like the same sort of like this might not go thing, but like even more intense. Yeah. I have a shoot next week that has been literally pushed for a month and a half. Are you confident in it or are you feeling like I'm just not going to assume this will happen? I'm confident in it because the talent, it's on a soundstage and the talent, we had a chat with her, video chat with her today, and she did not seem concerned at all. And I feel like that is kind of where the worry starts from. So yeah. And I have a friend, actually a guy in my pod who interviews all sorts of celebrities for this documentary show he's doing and they are um like last week like a very famous celebrity just pulled out the day before because he said you know what i don't he's a little on the older side and he's like i I just don't want you guys coming over to my house even if you're filming in my backyard and even if you've been testing everything so i just think that stuff is just going to keep happening especially if our numbers aren't plummeting what uh, are the things like, so you bid on projects, like, do you, are, are you develop? do you develop anything creatively on your own? Like, right. Do you, you make, you know, elaborate 4d models of maps of grocery stores that you're not going to end up using because they're inaccurate. George, I would say the thing that has given me the most motivation and uh, clarity actually with all of this is dedicating an hour sprint every morning to writing has been the keystone for me, like staying even tempered and like happy over most of this quarantine. So basically for every morning from 10 to 11, I like I'll turn off my internet or, and like, you know, put on my headphones and like dedicate, you know, at least that hour to, trying my hardest to work on a screenplay and then you know look if it doesn't happen or it happens or if i'm on a hot streak and i write for two more hours at least i've dedicated a a manageable but meaningful amount of time to writing and therefore advancing my career and that has been really really helpful yeah matt has been amazing in that and did you finish your first draft of your feature i did yeah 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 I, i got a draft out um yeah Pretty inspirational. Pretty awesome. You know, we'll <laughs> see if it's good or not. But well, that's, you know, it, you know it, that's that's a, that's a separate thing. I mean, and I think it's worth stating because I think that being able to commit to completion something that on your own deadline creatively during a time when you know it's it's easy and it's not incorrect to excuse yourself from that sort of thing. Um, I think that's impressive and. Uh, you know, not to say everybody should hold themselves to that standard either, but I do think it's like kind of like you said, there there may be a point where it's time to stop finding things to watch on TV. Well, I you know, I think the funny thing about feeling ready ish to start 
you know, taking it out to people is that um, because our timeline is so shifty and there's going to be this huge gold rush for talent and, you know, the idea of trying to get something up and going right now is actually quite daunting. You know, that that's the new form of depression is like, well, I've got this screenplay, but like, when the heck are we going to shoot it um, becomes becomes the next question. And I think that, you know, it, it, there's a little bit of wait and see to it and there's plenty of time to rewrite it and make it better and stronger so that like by the time we get to, you know, go out into the real world again, it's battleproof. Yeah, there may be more, there may be more people available. To, I don't know because I haven't gone down this road yet. But I wonder if there are more people who are willing to read things right now, or if there's a lot of things getting sent around. My friends who work in development say that you know there's not a ton happening for obvious reasons. You know, yeah, I think there was a, a rush of early sales. You know, a couple months ago, um, where everyone was like, "Well, when we're back, we're going to need more content." And I know I've got a good friend who eh, their feature date has been pushed two or three times at this point, and they had to recast a few people, and no one wants to commit, right? Because like we can all sense that there's going to be big opportunities coming once we're all back to production for real. And so people don't want to commit to, you know, a small indie or something when they're hoping that, you know, Christopher Nolan is going to come knocking or something. I don't know. I mean, it is tricky for indies, right? It's not cheap. You know, it's, it's a, a lot of money in PPE and testing and, you know, COVID managers. But I, I know for sure that, you know, everyone is still trying to figure it out. And like, there's a lot of wait and see of like what studio is going to make the first step and who's going to kind of blaze the trail on that front. I will say a couple of things just um, from friends. So we have a friend who's a showrunner on an NBC show, uh, Matt, the bill who we ran into. um, He told me that they are not the whole universal lot is closed for the rest of the year, 2020. And so they are, they do have like writing room, like kind of, again, little pods of like, they rent an office somewhere, but most of the writers are on working remotely. And then we have uh, another member of our pod, actually, she's a costume designer on an ABC show. And they actually, today was her first day back and they are doing all the prep for the season remotely. And this is, I think it's season three of the show. So it's not like re- everyone kind of knows each other and they're not recreating things from scratch, but they're doing like remote purchasing and like all the costumers are working from their own homes and all the lighting people are kind of making plans over zoom. And, um, they are, were originally shooting on Warner brothers. Um, but now they have moved to Radford because I think they're not allowed to shoot at Warner brother. Warner yeah. Right now. Yeah. Radford I know is, is open and that I know that there are some people back, today i'm curious to see if we get to production or not i i do i do want to just mention on a side note that my shoot next week is a pretty low budget for a commercial and we do have a covid monitor so i i don't think they're absurdly expensive do you guys feel based on your experiences that some of these things are are here to stay yeah, I I think casting I think will happen more remotely. I'm really grateful to the idea that like I'll be able to take more meetings without commuting to the west side. 
I, I feel like we've all learned that like telecommuting is a thing that's not so bad and sometimes even better. And I think that stuff will certainly stay um, in the development and pre-production phase. So don't so hold on to your Zoom stock is what you're saying. I actually found casting over Zoom to be better in, in certain ways because, you know, when usually when you're casting, especially in commercials, but in everything, really, you're sitting on a couch and the actors are like, 20 feet away from you they there's this thing about actors even the best most experienced actors in the world they walk into a room you tell them they see where the camera is and they will stand as close to the wall (laughs) as they can they'll literally put their back on the wall and then that's why you know casting offices have like little x's on the ground because actors just like get as far away from you as possible so um in when you're casting over zoom you're like a foot away from your camera they're like a foot away from their camera um, you know, sometimes a little bit more than that, but you are actually seeing each other's faces in a way where if you saw each other again, you would probably recognize each other. Whereas in commercial casting, I don't know, Matt, your experience, but I'll have auditioned someone a week ago and I'll see them at the coffee shop. And I'll be like, Hey, I think we met each other. And then they'll be, they'll have no idea who I am because, you know, there were lights on their face. They were like 25 feet away. There's five people watching them act. Or they didn't know you're the director. Right, yeah, that's the other thing. They right? probably <laughs> didn't. Yeah. Even though I always say, hello, I'm Oren, the director. And yeah. then I refer to me as maestro, if you must. I just want to throw one more thing before we go to the next topic of what I do think and I'm excited about changing. And it's not film specific, but it's COVID specific is I do think people will think twice before they go to work sick uh matt and i actually did an episode about i was sick right before shoot on march 5th i had a fever and we were trying to figure out if i should go to the shoot or not um and you know you're the director you're the dp you're the actor you're like a it's a big opportunity to be there b you want to get paid and c there's this attitude especially from directors but but many people on set that like if i'm not there no one knows what the plan is and the whole thing will fall apart you know so I do think nowadays, like being sick is something that people will take more seriously. And it's actually something they should have taken more seriously. Like people were giving each other the flu on a set. You know, they were giving each other various diseases and sicknesses. And they usually didn't end in death. But, you know, it's you, sh- you shouldn't go work when you're sick. And part of the problem with our industry is that every job seems like the, so holy and it's like your next stepping stone. You'll, if you don't go, if you tell someone you're sick, they're going to hire someone else and they'll never hire you again. And there's a little bit of a fear of loss, you know, in film. There is a lot that will change. And I guess just like, again, to wrap up, I am really fascinated to see if the industry changes in terms of the theatrical business model. Um, it feels to me like it was already changing. Um, it feels to me like this has been a huge, I mean, this not feels, this is a fact. Streaming stuff has been off the charts, obviously, because people have been at home looking for anything and everything to stream. Do you guys think movies, it's going to make sense to just open things always streaming in the future? Do you see that happening? Um, do you see the theatrical model shrinking more? Do you think it'll come back in the way it used to be? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I I'm pretty religious when it comes to movies. Like, I love going to a theater. I, you know, I, I had the Alamo Draft House season pass. I was like there, ready all the time. But I think that 
the lens that I always try to look at film through is that, you know, we all got into filmmaking, right? You know, I'm in my thirties looking, watching and loving movies from the nineties and two thousands where studios were making mid budget movies, right? Like you could make a 5 million, 10 million, $50 million comedy and people would go see it and they'd love it and it would make its money. And it was a huge hit. Right. And now, you know, since then that, that has been happening less and less and less until streaming. Right. So now those kind of the rom-coms and the coming of age comedies, all that stuff, um, no one is making them except for basically Judd Apatow or it's a, a an action comedy, right? Um, it's Jumanji or, uh, you know, something like that. Well, those are still big budget, right? I mean, that's a... Yeah, that's exactly. That's, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like like to find like just a true pure comedy, there's not that many people who get to make them anymore. Um, but so if you look at, you know, something like Palm Springs, I think that was like a $5 million budget, maybe 10, not, not a ton huge sale out of Sundance and now everyone's talking about it. So do I miss the idea of going to watch a movie and laughing with people and having that experience? Of course. Do I think that's going to go away? Not ultimately, but what's important to me is that people are watching movies and talking about them and them, them having a cultural moment that's meaningful and therefore we get to make more of them. So like that kind of nets out in a positive way, even if, you know, uh, we don't, we're not watching in theaters the way I would like to. Yeah. I mean, I guess I I kind of look at the theatrical, there's kind of two elements to it. The way I think about it, there's like the business and there's the culture. I, I think the problem is in the business point of view, you need the theatrical to pay for Avengers, that $200 million, $300 million film. You know, we've talked to some people that are like working on movies like those $150, $200 million movies that were supposed to come out this summer. And they, and I've been like, why not just release it on VOD or, you know, on Netflix or streaming or drive-ins or whatever. And they're like, you just, you, when you spend $300 million, you know, and you're spending like another $200 million worldwide on promotions and stuff and distribution, you cannot make, you know, $3 million opening weekend. It just doesn't, there's no way that you're going to make your money back. Um, so, you know, I, I think those big movies is going to be really hard to, uh, to lose that front end bump of like hit of money. Um, I think culturally, and I do think this is where Matt, actually Matt sounds like he's more on the same page as me than I expected. Um, But I I do think that my wife and I love going to the movies. It's our favorite thing. We will spend so much money on a babysitter so we can go see a movie in the movie theater. And we don't even care if the movie's that good. We just really, really enjoy it. But that said, I do think the culture of going to the movies is just not that interesting to people anymore. Like, I think teenagers, young people, millennials even like don't care about it that much. I think, you know, like, you know, you've gone and we've all been to the Grove or whatever to see a movie and half the kids are like on their phones throughout the movie. Like, I just think that like holiness of the movie theaters is not there and we can force people to and Tarantino can write article after article about how important it is, but it doesn't matter 
when at the end of the day, people aren't watching it. And I actually heard this really good interview with Prince Blythe. Is that her name? She directed Old Guard um, about, you know, uh, that movie, which I think is one of the most viewed movies on Netflix, at least this year. Um, And at the end, you know, do you want to see your movie on the big screen or do you want the most number of people to see your movie? And I've always been the second most number of people to see your movie. And, you know, Matt and I, we've been to film festival. I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners have made something and been to a film festival and seen it on the big screen. And it's very fun and exciting. But to me, like having people watch my stuff is just so much more important. And that's why I would sometimes would get a bigger dopamine hit from like a viral video than from a film festival where a hundred people saw something I worked on. Yeah. I I always thought, Personally, I always thought I was in the camp of like, all I want is to sit in a theater with a crowd that's watching the movie I made. And I just want that so bad. And you know, when it, the times when it happened, it was kind of like, wait, what? It's not, what? it's not quite perfect. Like it didn't quite live up to my expectations. So there could be extenuating circumstances I won't go into, but I do think that there are, like, I agree with uh, highlighting a lot of what both of you said, like Matt. I definitely, I grew up, you know, movie theaters are sacred and holy to me culturally or in describing how nice it is to go out to the movies, like with your wife. It's like, God, it seems like that's so long ago and so impossible now. But um, I miss it and I love it. But I agree. I think that it is not the way people want to consume content as much as I hate using that kind of phrase anymore. And I think that it will significantly change. And I kind of like your silver lining on it, Matt, that it's like, hey, that might actually be the way more interesting stuff gets through to more people. And there's more room for niche content and for creatives who have ideas that don't appeal to four quadrants, et cetera, whatever. Um, So I like that. I like that take a lot. Um, Yeah. I mean, and I think that there's always going to be film festivals. I think there's always going to be small theaters that are continuing to show like repertory programming or even, you know, new releases. I think just the idea of like everyone in the suburbs hitting the Cineplex every weekend, you know, I, boy, I hope it happens, but you know, that's been dwindling for a long time. Anyway, there are cycles. Like I've met young people who like things on VHS cause it's just weird. Um, and, and I, I, I do think medium ends up being interesting and there may be a place for like, Hey, it's a, it's an only shot on film film festival. Those exist, you know, by the way, but I do think that there is a place for it. And I think that, uh, there's, there's going to be a value to it, but I do think that that kind of like everything goes through this funnel has already taken such a huge hit. And, uh, I see it. Like after this, it's hard. It would, you know, things like Tenet, it, like you said, it makes sense that that will have to be theatrical. But, you know, I, you know, I wonder if maybe the lens to go even like a little broader and a little more philosophical, the important lens maybe is what, how do young people, you know, how, what are their cultural signifiers? Right. So, like when, our parents were kids, you know, it was more like their record collection really said 
told their friends who they were and what and what their values were and what they cared about. And that was true for a long time. Right? And then that kind of became movies. And then, you know, maybe that became, you know, your taste in comedy or books or whatever. You know, it's a collection of things and, and cultural ephemera that said, like, this is who I am and this is what I think. Um, and now that has shifted for kids and it's maybe like a little harder for us to parse because it's a mixture of like what they've liked online and who they follow and all of that. But decoding that and figuring out how to cater to that audience, I think is maybe going to be the key to unlocking them. And, and knowing that just because someone loves TikTok doesn't mean they're not interested in long form storytelling telling that speaks to them. Is, and qu- is they, Quibi the perfect example of that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no but, game, a, but Game of Thrones podcast. is like a great example, right? Yeah, or, or Marvel, right? Like how many kids have you seen with a like a, a Marvel t-shirt on? And they're like, I'm a Marvel fan. And that says something about me or, or Game of Thrones or whatever, you know? Like there's still ways in which young people try to tell each other and us who they are through pop culture. And so... I just want to figure out how to get their money. (laughs) But that I think that there's like, there's just even like wrapping up to a lot of things we've touched on. Cinematic storytelling happens in a lot of different places and a lot of different ways. And, you know, we get into this in a lot of cases because we think about our movies on the big screen. But, but I do think that um, you can get more eyeball balls other ways through other platforms now more and more. And I kind of think one of the cool things about talking to you guys, especially on No Film School podcast, is that you have created and directed a lot of stuff in a lot of different format. Um, there's, n- there's not like one, you know, it, it, it used to be very different. Like film school was for filmmaking and, and that meant movie making. You know, it wasn't like directing TV was kind of like this whole other thing. Um, and I like that all those lines are getting blurred. I think it means more interesting stuff happens. So, do you guys have anything else you want to add or talk about? But I, I'll, I'll, I'll recommend a couple things. Uh, one, I feel like uh, it's worth mentioning that if you are into filmmaking at all, you should check out our podcast, Just Shoot It. Uh, we interview lots of great people, like George Edelman, uh, on our podcast. And we are basically trying to find the intersection between filmmaking, the craft and the business of filmmaking, and what it it takes to be a working filmmaker, like to say, hey, this is my job and this is how I make a living and and finding a sustainable way to do that. Um, so check it out. Just Shoot It podcast. I think that, you know, we at No Film School look to Just Shoot It as one of those things where they are doing it right. I think that it's worth noting that we're trying to find ways to help filmmakers forge ahead with careers as human beings in a difficult industry. And you guys have dedicated your, your podcast to that search and help people. And even in this podcast, I think if you liked what you heard in this podcast, you're going to love just shoot it because it's these two guys, but also it's actually like functional information about what you can do, how things work right now. And you're going to learn from the inside and it's extremely valuable. We, we also really make a point of like, pumping the brakes on things that, you know, in a normal interview, people would just gloss over, you know, the kind of the story of like, well, I called so-and-so up on the phone and before I knew it, we were all on set shooting. That's the thing that, you know, that's, that's what we dig in on. Like we're, we're talking about like 
what they said in the subject line of their email sometimes. Like we go as deep as possible. How did you get Julia Roberts' email address? Decoding it is the thing that's really complicated and like um, took us years to learn, basically. Turns out it's juliaroberts at (laughs) gmail.com. Guessing email addresses is one of the best tips we've gotten from our podcast. I have two two quick things I can say. Um, One is I've been... Uh, so these are kind of two answers to questions you asked, but in the form of things to think about. One is I've just been super getting super obsessed with 3D graphics and everything. I even bought a new PC today. I've been telling Matt about it every five minutes because my Mac cannot render 3D graphics anywhere near as well as any PC can. Um, and uh, there's an artist named Ian Hubert, I-A-N, first name, H-U-B-E-R-T, last name. On He's on Instagram. He's on Twitter. I follow him on Twitter is where I see all his coolest things. But he uses this free 3D software called Blender. And he makes the most amazing, insane things that you've ever seen with just him and his wife. He's made, basically, he's like recreated something that looks like Blade Runner, but it's like 100% original to him um, by himself with his wife. And it just shows you that you can build giant worlds and do giant giant sci-fi amazing things that are refined and studio level, you know, um, it. By yourself during COVID without a hundred person team. Um, so check him out, Ian Hubert. He's awesome. And then the other thing that you had um, asked about how things change, and uh, I hope this isn't too weird of a direction to go, but I think part of COVID and us all being at home kind of uh, left an opening, I think, for Black Lives Matter movement. And, uh, and that kind of spearheaded this like, basically no assholes movement, like, you know, um, because I mean, you know, it's obviously like started with racism and sexism and like me too and all that stuff. But I do think as the world has had time to actually listen and think and react, I I do think that like going forward, one of these changes we're going to get as a weird side effect of COVID is that when someone is an asshole to someone else, like on set in the writer's room, when they're pitching, you know, it's just become very... Hopefully, it, my hope is it's become much more acceptable to say something, you know. Uh, and I know. I, I hope that's true because that is a that has been a plague in the business as long as I've been around it. I think that um, we're all inside a lot more, and we're all feeling especially listless. So I'm recommending a, a list of films, and then watching all of them in order. So maybe that's like, you know, the AFI list from back in the day. Maybe that's, you know, the entire catalog of a director. But I think like there's something really satisfying about working through something. um, And that kind of gives you a little bit more structure than just sort of like browsing through, you know, Netflix or wherever. When else are you going to be able to say, you know what? I sat down and I rewatched every single Kubrick film in chronological order one week and it was great. You know, like that's that's the sort of nerdery that like, you know, we don't really have time for when we're working. So give that a shot. I do think coming up with some kind of structure to I should watch all the movies on this list or all the movies that did this film, this cinematographer or something like that. Well, thanks, guys. This has been really George, This is great. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, as you can tell, Matt and Oren are great. And if you haven't been convinced already that you should start listening to Just Shoot It, you definitely should. Um, there's a lot you can learn from them. Anyone can learn a lot from them. And they're always asking the right questions. Um, 
I would encourage you also to check out our weekly No Film School podcast. We publish Thursdays or Fridays every week. We cover the news, everything you missed in the world of filmmaking that week. Hosted by myself, hosted by myself, Charles Hain and Michelle De La Tour. Uh, we also have a ton of great stuff up on NoFilmSchool.com. As always, there are a lot of things happening in the mirrorless camera world between the Sony A7S 3 and the Canon EOS R5. I have tests up there. We have all kinds of takes. We have all the specs and details, and we have more coming on both of them and other cameras and, of course, all the other filmmaking news that we come across in the world. So check it all out. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, like, and subscribe, and uh, we'll hear from you soon.